Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 9.3 The World's Most Contested Site. We are now on to our third week of the ninth wonder of the ancient world. King Solomon's Temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem. In this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, covering the history of this magnificent temple. Now, I want to say a few things before we get started with this week's episode. I'm going to cover the history of the temple up to its final destruction by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. I will not be going into any more history of Jerusalem beyond that point. It doesn't serve any purpose for our show to do so. If you are interested in learning about those, there are plenty of other podcasts and books that you can pick up and learn from. But back to the topic at hand. When we left the story last week, Jerusalem had been put under siege by the Assyrians somewhere around 700 BC. The Assyrians had just conquered the northern Jewish kingdom of Israel and were looking to do the same to the southern kingdom of Judea. King Hezekiah did the only thing he could to save his people, pay off the Assyrians to leave him and his kingdom alone. But Hezekiah did not nearly have the amount of wealth that Solomon had in his kingdom. So he found the money to pay the Assyrians wherever he could. He stripped the gold off the walls and doors of the temple and gave it to the Assyrians. His payment worked as Assyria left Judea alone. But this would certainly not be the last time a foreign army would end up with treasures from the temple, and Judea would not have to wait long for that time to come again. About 80 years after Hezekiah, around 620 BC, the people of Judea had again abandoned God and were worshipping the gods of their neighbors. It had gotten so bad that the temple of the Lord had been filled with idols, and worship of those idols occurred there frequently. But King Josiah, another Judean king who followed after God, did his best to bring the people back. In 2 Kings 23, King Josiah burned all the idols. He also had a public reading of the books of the covenant done for the people. The books of the covenant are the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. It was in these books where God laid out the rules of worship to him and what made the Jews different from all of the other peoples in the world. Josiah's revival was short-lived. The few kings that followed him went back on this revival and once again worshipped the gods of the peoples instead of the one true God of Israel. His sons rebelled against God, and by this time, God had had enough. He sent a different enemy to Jerusalem's gates. This time, It was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. We have already met King Nebuchadnezzar here on the 21 Wonders podcast. We talked about him when we discussed the second wonder of the ancient world, the Ishtar Gate. But this time, he was not here as a maleficent monarch. This time, he was here as a conqueror and as a punishment to the Jewish nation from God himself. In 604 B.C., While Nebuchadnezzar was still young and fresh into his reign, he made Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah and king of Judea, 
a vassal to the growing Neo-Babylonian Empire. But three years later, in 601, after a devastating conflict with Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar retreated back to Babylon to regroup his army. Jehoiakim, counting on help from Egypt, tried to throw off the Babylonians and reestablish Judea, this time as a vassal kingdom of Egypt. But this would prove to be a fatal mistake. In 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar returned, not taking lightly to the rebellion of the Jews. 2 Kings 24, beginning in verse 10, documents the encounter of Nebuchadnezzar's return to Jerusalem. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judea, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. From this moment on, King Solomon's temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem was gone. The people of Judea, were now captives and exiles in Babylon. But the story of the temple does not end there. Nebuchadnezzar, for all his successes as king, the Neo-Babylonian Empire did not last beyond his death. Almost immediately after he died, the Medo-Persian Empire from the east came and conquered Babylon and all their territories, including Judea and the Jews who were still captives. But God did not abandon his people in their captivity. He paved the way for Esther to become queen and wife of Xerxes, one of the most famous Persian kings, to save the Jewish people from genocide. He gave incredible wisdom and told Daniel the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar, paving the way for him to become a high court official in both the Babylonian and Persian courts. He saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery death. And he worked through a man named Ezra to help convince the Persian king Darius to allow the Jews to return to their land and rebuild their fallen city. Allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem was no small thing. Particularly in the ancient world, when a people were captured, you never let them return to what was their capital city. For it was in these cities, where said captured peoples held the most power, the most prestige, and the most influence. So if you let a captured people return to their capitals, this would usually mean rebellion, sooner rather than later. But for the Jews, this was not their plan. They simply wanted to rebuild their city and bring it back from the ashes, a place where they felt like they could worship God without being punished, persecuted, or pressured. It helped that the Persians were a different empire compared to the rest of the ancient world. They were much more lenient about letting people return to their former lands, or keeping newly captured peoples 
in their same lands. This was revolutionary, but the Persians understood something that no one else in the ancient world seemed to get. That the people who originated in a certain land were best situated to make that land prosperous. And if you let them stay in their land and worship their gods, these people who you have just annexed into your empire are less likely to rebel. The only thing that's really changed is that they have to pay their taxes to you. But as long as their life doesn't get too thrown around, they will fairly quickly accept the new empire. The Persians used this to very quickly expand. And King Darius, in this spirit, issued the following decree to Ezra and to the people of Israel of the Persian Empire. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana, in the province of Medea, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let the foundations be laid. It is to be sixty cubits high and sixty cubits wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tatiani, governor of the Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozenai, and your other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for the elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury, from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for the burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given to them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, Overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. I can't even begin to describe how this decree would have felt for the Jewish peoples in exile. This would have been a dream come true, an answer to prayer. From the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar to this decree by Darius, it was less than a generation. Jerusalem was sacked in 597 BC, and Darius had issued this decree somewhere between 538 and 537 BC. There definitely were some people who were young when Jerusalem was sacked 
and the Jews carried off into captivity, and they were still alive when Darius issued this decree. Allowed to return home and rebuild their temple, the Jews obeyed this decree with much joy. Ezra chapter 6 continues with this account. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, the sixth year of the reign of Darius. Darius had decreed that this temple should be about 60 cubits high and 60 cubits long. That's about 27 meters or 90 feet in both directions. Unlike the original temple that Solomon built though, these are the only details that were given. There's no mention as to the size of the Holy of Holies, the courtyard, or anything else of the temple. But I think it's fair to guess that the Jews would have built these very similarly to the original temple. There is also no mention as to what materials were to be used, or where those materials came from. Darius does mandate that all the treasures which were taken from Jerusalem be returned, but we do not know what extent of the treasures had survived up to that point. Had they all been taken and kept the same while in Babylon? Did some get melted down into coins, artifacts, or idols by the Babylonians? We will never know. All the Bible tells us is that the treasures were to be returned, which they were. The Jews set up the worship at this temple as it was given to Moses in the Torah, the same way Solomon had it set up. While not quite the same as their golden age under Solomon, this temple was another magnificent structure. If for no other reason, then it reminded the Jews of the good times that had passed. This is the extent of the Temple of Solomon in the Old Testament. Jerusalem, though, would continue to be an important topic. About 80 years after Ezra and the Jews rebuilt the temple, Nehemiah came along and got permission from King Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This was the final piece needed for Jerusalem to properly return to a state of prominence in the ancient Near East. While this prospect was not popular with all, God moved in the heart of Artaxerxes and gave Nehemiah permission to rebuild the walls. Jerusalem, once again, would be established in the ancient Near East, and from this point on, would become the most contested city in history. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. After Nehemiah and the Jews finished the walls, we enter into a dark period of Jewish history. In about the 400 years between the finishing of the walls and the birth of Christ, there is virtually nothing recorded, at least that we have today. But this does not mean that nothing happened. About a hundred years after Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls, Persia was under siege from that great Macedonian general, Alexander the Great. In Alexander's conquest of Persia, he passed directly past Jerusalem twice once on his way down to Egypt after the famous Battle of Tyre in 332 BC, and then again on his way back up to the Euphrates River in 331 BC. Alexander stopped in Jerusalem in 332 BC and was given a hero's welcome. But I am not, however, going to go into any more details here. 
about Alexander's visit to Jerusalem. I'm going to delve into that a little bit more next week, as we'll have a different type of episode, but I will explain that a little bit better at the end of this week and the beginning of next week. After Alexander's death in 323 BC, his empire was split amongst his generals, and Jerusalem was placed under the control of Ptolemy, the general who was also given control of Egypt. Again, I will not go into the Ptolemaic dynasty. That is yet another rabbit trail I do not want to go down. We will have cause to do so when we cover the library of Alexandria. But for here, all that is important is that this new temple that was built at the end of the 500s BC was still standing. And it wouldn't be long before Jerusalem would be the center of attention for yet another empire. This time, though, this attention would be very different. And this empire was Rome. Before Rome even became an empire, though, one of the members of the First Triumvirate, the general by the name of Pompey, went on a campaign of conquest for Rome in the east in 64 BC. He defeated the Parthians and established the providence of Syria in modern-day Syria. In 63 BC, he conquered Jerusalem and Judea from the Seleucid Empire, who had conquered Jerusalem from the independent Jewish state called the Maccabees about a hundred years prior. This conquest by Pompey officially brought Jerusalem and the new temple into the Roman Empire. And while this city was famous, the Romans would get more than they bargained for. Despite all that happened in Roman Judea after this conquest, I will only be focusing on what is important to the temple. I think I've done a good job avoiding rabbit trails so far, and I'm going to do my best to continue to do so. So we're not going to go into any details about Jesus or Christianity in the Roman Empire. While this is the case, there are one or two things that I will mention about Jesus here for the purpose of our episode, and they both have to do with his crucifixion. One week before he was crucified, Jesus entered Jerusalem to a hero's welcome. Matthew in his gospel records Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Despite this entrance, most of the people there in Jerusalem did not understand Jesus. The people of Jerusalem thought that Jesus was coming to drive out the Romans and restore King Solomon's kingdom, bring Judea back to a golden age. They knew that a Messiah or a Savior was coming, but they misunderstood why this Messiah was coming. Not to save their bodies, kingdom, or nation, but to save their souls. Despite this misunderstanding, the Jewish people initially welcomed Jesus to the capital with open arms. The Jewish religious leaders, by contrast, hated Jesus and his message that he was the Son of God and that he had come to bridge the gap between God and man. The religious leaders had elevated themselves within Judaism to be this quote-unquote bridge and enjoyed their prestigious pedestal. But Jesus pointed out repeatedly 
that they were hypocrites and had confused the worship of God with the traditions that they themselves had enacted. As such, they had allowed the temple to once again become nothing more than a common marketplace, just like their ancestors. Matthew records how Jesus responded to the situation. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The Jewish religious leaders hated this move, as they were making a nice profit off of what was being sold in the temple. But Jesus was not having it. He drove them out. But this was not the only major event at the temple that involved Jesus that week. Just a few days later, when Jesus was being crucified, something dramatic happened at the temple. Matthew 27 records the phenomenal event that took place as Jesus died. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is the same curtain that we talked about last week. The thick, heavy curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It was this curtain which blocked the view of the Holy of Holies from everyone in the temple. With his death, Jesus had removed the barrier between God and man, and the tearing of the curtain was the perfect visual. Both of these events happened about 33 AD. And even though Jesus was not the military leader that the Jewish people were hoping for, all of the energy, emotion, and attention that they had gotten while Jesus was alive, it had to go somewhere. And in 66 AD, the Jews put all that energy to use. They rebelled against Rome and tried to become an independent nation once again. Roman Emperor Nero sent General Vespasian down to Judea to quell the rebels. It would be a brutal struggle between the two sides, with thousands upon thousands of casualties. In the midst of this conflict, Nero committed suicide and Vespasian was declared emperor. He put his son Titus in charge of putting down the Jewish rebellion. A few years later, the Romans had surrounded Jerusalem and began to squeeze the life from it and in 70 AD they finally breached the walls. The destruction and death in the city were staggering. The Romans killed thousands of Jews and enslaved thousands more. But the most significant thing they did when they got inside the city was they destroyed the new temple. And I don't mean they just took everything and left the building standing. No, they went a step further than the Babylonians. The Romans burned the new temple to the ground, and then they even destroyed its foundation. Not a single stone remained where it was. The Romans took whatever treasures were left in the temple and carried them off to Rome. And King Solomon's temple, which once housed more treasure than any building on earth, was gone. Not even the foundation remained. The Temple of Solomon to Jehovah at Jerusalem would immediately become legend. Armies, kings, emperors, treasure hunters, religious leaders, and many others 
would travel to the city to look for this treasure and the site of the famous temple. Some looked more violently than others. But the temple and its treasure and even the ground it stood on were lost to history. Where the temple was originally located is still a hot topic in Jewish and Islamic societies today. That concludes our visit to the ninth wonder of the ancient world, King Solomon's Temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem. As I mentioned earlier, next week we're going to do something a little different. I've been asked by a few of you to explore one specific rabbit trail about the Temple of Solomon, so I will do just that. This particular rabbit trail has to do with the most famous of the treasures of King Solomon's temple. It is one of the most elusive artifacts in history. Movies have been made about its discovery. And there are many theories as to where its final resting place actually is. Next week, we will discuss all these theories, the rabbit trails, and I will give you my own personal theory about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah.